birthday celebration. We often have a lot of things going on during that day, beginning Easter week. And sometimes the details of the story itself get kind of lost in the shuffle. And so I think it might be helpful for us to take a step back and look at what Jesus is up to as he rides on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. But before we dive into the passage, I'd like to set it up this morning with a little bit of reader's theater. We're going to take a little flashback. to demonstrate before you this morning is an imagined conversation between three wise men and King Herod when they first arrived in Jerusalem as they followed the star. So you remember they met with King Herod and Dorothy Sayers has imagined what that conversation might have actually sounded like as they talked to the king about this baby born to be king. So I invite the three wise men to join me up here on the stage. And as they're coming, I want you to focus in particular as you're listening to us to what the wise men have to say. I'll be playing the part of King Herod, and I don't say as many important things as they do. So listen to what they have to say about this king who is coming and the way that he is characterized. Now, tell me, when exactly did this royal star appear? Twelve days ago, we beheld its light in the east. Twelve days. In the house of the lion, the lion of Judah, the house of David. It may be so. Bethlehem is called the city of David. Did you know that? And the scriptures speak of Bethlehem, priest and king. Have you calculated his horoscope? What sort of man will this be that is born to be king of the Jews? Prouder than Caesar. More humble than his slave, his kingdom shall stretch from the sun's setting to the sun's rising, higher than the heavens and deeper than the grave, and narrow as the human heart. He shall offer sacrifice in Jerusalem, and have his temples in Rome and Byzantium, and he himself shall be both sacrifice and priest. You speak mysteries. Tell me this. Will he be a warrior king? The greatest of warriors, yet he shall be called the Prince of Peace. He will be victor and victim in all his wars, and will make his triumph in defeat. And when wars are over, he will rule his people in love. You cannot rule men by love. When you find your king, tell him so. Only three things will govern a people, fear and greed and the promise of security. Do I not know it? Have I not loved? I have been a stern ruler, dreaded and hated. Yet my country is prosperous and her borders at peace. But wherever I loved... I found treachery, wife, children, brother, all of them, all of them. Love is a traitor. It has betrayed me. It betrays all kings. It will betray your Christ. Give him that message from Herod, king of Jewry. Sir, when we have found the Christ? True, I had forgotten. When you find him, return and let me know. We must work quickly and cunningly. Patriotic party only need a leader and a name, some name that will unite instead of divide them. They will not support me, because I am not of Jacob's house. But if I myself go and swear allegiance to this royal child, then they will all fall into line behind me. But first we must make certain of the boy. May I rely on you to bring me news at once? Well, you know the rest of the story. They didn't return back to Herod. They were warned in a dream by an angel not to go back to King Herod and report to him what they had found. The angel sent them back home to the east, away from Herod by a different route. And so they went back knowing that the king of the Jews had been born, knowing that this king was going to be a paradoxical king. He was going to be all of those things that the wise men described him as. And the passage that we're looking at this morning has Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, shows him presenting himself as the king. 
This is the first of three major prophetic symbolic acts that Jesus performs in Matthew 21 within the first 24 hours of his arrival in Jerusalem for Passover week. Entering Jerusalem on a donkey, making a big scene in the temple, and cursing a fig tree. And all three actions have to do with God's judgment against Jerusalem, as we'll see clearly. But he is a bag full of paradoxes as he rides on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. And we need to pay attention to what he's up to here. And as Matthew, the gospel writer, tells the story, he does something interesting and a little bit unusual. He interrupts the flow of the story as he's telling what happens to quote Old Testament scripture. Because he really wants his readers, including us, to get the point. We'll talk more about why he feels the need to interrupt the story in the middle with the quotation of Scripture rather than just telling the whole story and then going back and saying this happens, happened to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet like he usually does. Instead, he intrudes into the middle of the story before the action is actually over. So why does he do that? We'll find out. Let's read the whole passage and get it before us, and then we'll see what we can discern about the purpose of Jesus' actions here. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus! From Nazareth of Galilee. It's a very, very familiar story. Jesus sends his disciples into a city to fetch two donkeys, and then he rides them into the city of Jerusalem. So let's set the stage a little bit more closely. I want you to be able to visualize and imagine the picture here. What's going on? Look at the first part of verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, who are they? Well, if you go back to the previous paragraph, back at the end of chapter 20, you might remember Jesus had healed two blind men outside the city of Jericho. And if you look at verse 29 of chapter 20, it says, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And so, as we enter chapter 21, we're pilgrimaging. We're processing into the city of Jerusalem with a great crowd who just witnessed Jesus healing two blind men outside the city of Jericho. And so this crowd is moving toward the city of Jerusalem right outside of Jericho, coming from Jericho. Now John's gospel tells us about another event that happened right before this. John chapter 12 is where we read about Jesus riding the donkey into Jerusalem And John chapter 11 had told about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, not two miles from the city of Jerusalem. So if we draw the accounts of John and Matthew together at this point, then we can see that a crowd that has witnessed Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead came to Jerusalem before Jesus. John 11.55 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Matthew speaks of a different crowd, a crowd accompanying Jesus from Jericho, a crowd who had witnessed Jesus heal the two blind men. 
Now, these crowds are going to become an important figure in the story. And when we get to the end, it gets a bit confusing as to who we're talking about. We'll try to sort that out near the end. As John 12 makes clear, this is happening six days before Passover. It's normal every year for hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the world to be moving into Jerusalem to spend the whole week in anticipation of the Passover festival. Jerusalem is suddenly going to be overrun with visitors a week ahead of the festival. Jesus is coming in the midst of all that fervor, all that excitement, and all of these people. They come in across and over the Mount of Olives, and just before they get ready to enter the city, Jesus stops the procession, and he picks two of his disciples. None of the four Gospels tells us which two, but he picks two of his disciples, and he sends them into a village and tells them to go fetch two donkeys, a mama donkey and a baby donkey. And he says, you're going to find them tied up in front of a house. Walk up, untie them, and bring them to me. And he warns them that they might experience a little bit of trouble along the way. Can't you imagine? Somebody sees two strangers walking up, picking up Joe's donkeys over there and untying them. So a neighbor perhaps watching might say, stop, thief. Or what are you doing untying those donkeys? And that's exactly what we find in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel. They do encounter this kind of resistance and they answer just like Jesus said, The Lord has need of them. And that proves sufficient. The owner or the neighbor says, oh, okay, and lets them go. And so these two strangers take the donkeys and bring them to Jesus. And then in verses 4 and 5, we get this quotation of Scripture, which we'll come back to. I want to get the whole story before us first. Jesus gives them instructions on what to do, and then Matthew stops the story, quotes Old Testament Scripture, And then he picks the story back up again. And I want to finish the story out first. So we'll skip ahead to verses 6 and 7. And there the disciples do what they're told. They go fetch the donkeys and they bring them. They bring the mama donkey and her baby. And they put on them their cloaks. So the two disciples bring these two donkeys to the larger gathering. And then they start taking off their coats, their jackets, their outer garments and lay them on top of both donkeys, on top of the mama donkey and on top of the baby donkey as a sort of makeshift saddle for both of them. And then Jesus mounts the baby. So when Matthew says he sat on them, he's talking about the cloaks, not the donkeys. He's talking about the cloaks that had just been laid over the baby donkey's back as a kind of saddle. So he mounts the colt and he's ready to go into the city. Now, we need to go back and look at the way that Matthew explains this because one of the things that we need to remember is that nobody watching what happens gets the point. Not the disciples who go fetch the donkeys and bring them to Jesus and not the crowds who are watching. Nobody. John's gospel tells us this explicitly. Look at John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but... When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And if the disciples didn't get it, you can be sure the crowds didn't either. The reason we need to press this point is because we need to recognize that the crowds are responding wrongly to what is happening. We tend to view their response as a great and wonderful thing. But Matthew and the other gospel writers each give us indicators that their response is wrong. So let's consider how Jesus fulfills the scriptures that Matthew quotes. He actually quotes from two separate Old Testament verses, splicing them together. The first line of verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, a seemingly unimportant line by itself, is taken from Isaiah 62, 11 while the rest of the quotation comes from Zechariah 9, 9. When we recognize that the words, say to the daughter of Zion, doesn't come from Zechariah 9, 9, but uniquely comes from Isaiah 62, 11, we are invited to connect Isaiah 62, 11 with Zechariah 9, 9. In Isaiah 62, 
Isaiah the prophet appoints watchmen who are tasked with constantly praying for Jerusalem. And then Yahweh announces the coming salvation of his people. The watchmen are further charged to prepare the way of the people, a task we saw fulfilled by John the Baptist in Matthew's gospel. Then in Isaiah 62, 11, we read these words. Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This seems to be the message the watchmen were supposed to prepare the people with, announcing the coming of Yahweh for their salvation. Now, in just a moment, we'll see how splicing this verse with Zechariah 9.9 impacts our understanding of the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jesus' actions. However, consider this question first. Have As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, where are the watchmen that Isaiah had appointed? Have they done their job? Or, to ask the question from another angle, have the people of Jerusalem, has the daughter of Zion heeded the message of the watchmen? Are they properly prepared for the king's arrival? No, they are not. The announcement in Isaiah was of salvation for Israel. And what Jesus has come to do will save Israel, but not in the way they were expecting. Zechariah 9.9 needs to shape our understanding of what Jesus is doing here. For all of the truth that we see in the crowd's reaction to Jesus' arrival, they're missing the point. There's something wrong with what they're saying and how they're responding. And I think that's why Matthew, in particular, quotes these scriptures before he finishes telling the story. He wants to make sure that his readers get the point. He he wants to make sure that we understand the real reason why Jesus was doing this, because it was not apparent to those who witnessed it. As he was riding into the city, Jesus apparently didn't look around at the crowds and say, hey, y'all should go home and read Zechariah's prophecy. There's a part in there about a king riding on a donkey. Jesus didn't say any of that, and so the people watching, even the disciples who participated, did not understand what he was doing. They didn't get it, but Matthew wants to make sure that we get it as readers. So, for us to get it, we need to look at Zechariah chapter 9 for a few minutes. So why don't you turn there in your Bibles, Zechariah chapter 9. It's just two books before Matthew, so you don't have to go far. What Jesus is doing here is surprising. He is fulfilling prophecy, but as he fulfills this prophecy, the fulfillment looks somewhat different than the expectation laid out in the prophet. That's generally true, folks. When Jesus fulfills an Old Testament prophecy, especially as we've already seen in Matthew's gospel, in the early chapters of Matthew's gospel, there was always a twist a development or an advancement in the fulfillment, which is one reason why it was not immediately recognizable to those who witnessed the fulfillment. We can't take the time to look at the full context. I encourage you to go home and read the first eight verses of Zechariah chapter 9. I'll summarize briefly. The prophet Zechariah is describing Yahweh, the God of Israel, marching through various cities, bringing judgment against them. If you pulled out a map and read the passage next to a map, you would see that the Lord is journeying from north to south, down through different cities. Now look at the beginning of of verse 8, Zechariah 9, 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard. Yahweh has been on the march, bringing judgment on God's enemies and the enemies of God's people from north to south until he stops at the temple in Jerusalem. And that's where he settles. So we're reading about Yahweh's movement. And he shows up at his house, the temple. We would expect, verse 9, to continue talking about the Lord's actions at the temple. But that's not what you get in verse 9. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Recall how similar Isaiah 62, 11 is. Isaiah had said salvation is coming, while Zechariah speaks of the king who is coming to bring salvation. This king is somebody different than we were just reading about. This is someone distinct from Yahweh, from the Lord. It's your king. Zechariah says, your human king is coming to you. In verse 10, Yahweh speaks again in the first person. So there's this distinction, and we're suddenly introduced to another player on the stage. Your king is coming to you, riding on a donkey here. The picture is indeed God bringing judgment on the people's enemies and then arriving in Jerusalem to celebrate that victory. But in verse 9, we find that God has come with his human king, the king he has chosen and appointed, and the king is to be viewed as his agent of judgment. Yahweh's victory over his enemies has been accomplished through his human king. And then he shows up at the temple for a great celebration. So here's the twist in Jesus' fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, but he has not yet conquered his enemies. He's actually coming into Jerusalem to do that. He's coming into Jerusalem to conquer his enemies. Now, we should here borrow the language of the Apostle Paul, because the enemies are the powers and principalities, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The enemies he's come to conquer are not flesh and blood. They're the rulers and authorities that are exercising evil influence over the human powers of this world. And he is going to vanquish them and achieve victory over them paradoxically through his death on the cross. That's what he's coming to do. He hasn't done it yet. That's the goal of this whole week. This whole time spent in Jerusalem will climax with this great victory on the cross. He's coming to endure the judgment of God, first and foremost. Now, in the following sections of Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see Jesus in Jerusalem, in the temple even, pronouncing judgment not against Israel's enemies, not against other nations, but against Jerusalem and against the temple and against the Jews. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem to speak a message of judgment against the Jewish people. That's what he's going to do throughout the whole last week of his life before he goes to the cross. Zechariah's prophecy describes the execution of God's judgment Jesus comes into Jerusalem announcing God's judgment. He's not yet executing God's judgment. He's announcing it. Execution of God's judgment is coming, but not yet. He's not riding the white war horse into Jerusalem to slay the rebellious. Yet. Rather, he's riding the lowly donkey. There are only a couple of places in the Old Testament where a king rides a donkey... King David, in 2 Samuel 16, rode donkeys while he was on the run from his son, Absalom. This was certainly not a time of triumph in David's life. He was being humiliated by his son's rebellion, and David wondered whether he was under God's curse. David's riding on a donkey was an indication of his suffering. Perhaps we should see that reflected in Jesus' donkey riding as well. Yet there's more. When Solomon was anointed and crowned king in 1 Kings chapter 1, he rode David's mule into Jerusalem. Jesus is riding on a donkey into the city like the son of David, Solomon did. Jesus is the ultimate son of David, as the blind men we saw last week could see, and the crowds are going to praise him that way in just a couple of verses. Son of David. He is the king who offers peace and who will accomplish peace through his own death and resurrection. Just a few days after this entry into Jerusalem, like Solomon, whose name means peace, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to achieve peace, to win the victory against all of God's enemies. Now, Zechariah 9.9 is what Matthew quotes, but it might be important for us to remember Zechariah 9.10 as well. In verse 10, Yahweh says, 
I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The reverence to Ephraim is interesting because in Zechariah's day, Ephraim was long gone. Ephraim is a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were wiped off the map long before Zechariah's day. But when we remember verse 10, we can see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, not merely presenting himself as the king of Israel or the king of the Jews. He is presenting himself as the king of all nations, the king of the universe. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the Jews, but he's also the king of everything and everybody. Jesus is the rightful king, the one who will bring peace. Reading Zechariah 9, 1 through 10 might lead us to expect that he would achieve peace for Israel first by destroying or judging all of their enemies. And then he goes and speaks peace to the nations. But that's not what happens. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he turns it around in his fulfillment of this prophecy. He brings peace peace both to Israel and the nations. But first, as he enters Jerusalem and spends time with the Jewish people for this week, he announces judgment and continued warfare and oppression for the Jewish people. So even while he goes on to preach peace to all nations, the king will send out his ambassadors to make disciples of all nations. That's the end of Matthew's story. That's where all of this is ultimately heading. Jesus is sending out, going to send out his ambassadors to pronounce peace to all nations. And as long as the Jewish people continue in their rebellion against their peaceful king, as long as the Jews remain enemies of the gospel, as Paul called them, only a remnant of them will be saved. As Paul will explain more fully in his letter to the Romans, Jesus extends peace to the Gentiles, and that will make Jews jealous and draw them to receive the peace the king has won through his death and resurrection. And so, in this way, all Israel will be saved. But here, on this day, 2,000 years ago, by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is announcing that he is the peaceful king, not just for Israel, but of the whole world. He comes to bring world peace. He is the son of David that Solomon failed to be. He enters rebellious Jerusalem to announce judgment. But instead of executing judgment against the people of Jerusalem, he submits to judgment, to condemnation, death on a cross. That's what he's here to do as he rides into the city. He has come to die. Now let's return to Matthew 21. The crowds don't see any of this. So what are they doing What are they doing in verses 8 and 9? Jesus has worked them up into a frenzy. The crowd rolls out the equivalent of a red carpet for Jesus, so to speak. They remove their outer garments and lay them on the road. And as they run out of cloaks, they go to the trees by the side of the road and start cutting branches off and laying them out. So Jesus, riding on his donkey, marches over on this red carpet, as it were. And John's gospel tells us that they were palm branches Specifically, so that's where we get the name Palm Sunday. Now, the crowd in verse 8 are those who came with him from Jericho, who saw him heal the two blind men. Now, these folks had probably witnessed Jesus performing miracles and heard his teaching for the past three years and are very familiar with him. These are the ones rolling out the red carpet in verse 8. But in verse 9, Matthew refers to two distinct groups of people. It's a little hard to see. In verse 9, Matthew refers to crowds that went before him. This seems to refer to the crowds who had come from Bethany ahead of Jesus. They're already in Jerusalem, but they've heard the news that Jesus is coming up the road. And they've rushed out of the city to meet him, to then escort him back into the city. This was a typical ancient practice. When a dignitary visited a city... A herald would often run ahead into the city to let everyone know that this important person was on the way. 
As the dignitary would approach the city, a rather large crowd would run out to meet the dignitary so that they might then greet him and escort him right back into the city. Thus, this crowd who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus would have also been excited about Jesus. This crowd then combines with the crowd that Matthew says followed him. Two different crowds, one ahead of him, one that followed him. But it's likely that the crowd that comes out from Jerusalem is mixed with citizens of Jerusalem or other Jews who might not have been quite so familiar with Jesus, who had traveled in for the holiday. They'd heard rumors, but they'd also heard the Pharisees' perspective about this Galilean miracle worker and potential messianic pretender. Thus, in these crowds, shouting, Hosanna, we might have a good number of people who viewed Jesus at best, with suspicion. Nevertheless, the crowd is shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And there's that title, Son of David. They're saying, this is a king figure. Maybe this might be the Messiah. Praise to him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now here, they're quoting from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Psalm 118 was a pilgrimage psalm. All of the Jews would have been singing this psalm together as they traveled to Jerusalem. From wherever they are in the world, Psalms 113 through 118 are pilgrimage songs, songs of ascents. They are sung as they traveled up into Jerusalem. And so it's quite possible that this song doesn't actually have anything to do with Jesus, at least as they are singing it. They may not intend anything directed to Jesus by singing this song. They could be just anticipating the coming of the king, but they're not necessarily saying Jesus is that king or we believe that Jesus is that king. It kind of seems like they are, though, at least some of them. They've rolled out the red carpet. They're cutting trees down to welcome this guy to the city. So there's something about him that at least some of these folks see as really good. But what do the words mean? What do they mean when they sing Hosanna? to the son of David. Even if they are looking at Jesus as he's on this donkey and they're saying, praise to you, welcome to the city, what are they hoping he'll do? Hosanna comes from Psalm 118, 25. It's a Hebrew phrase put into Greek that's been brought straight over into English. In the Hebrew of Psalm 118, 25, it is well translated by the ESV as Save us, we pray. The Hebrew is Hoshiana, which is more simply in English, please save. And in the psalm, that cry is directed to Yahweh. But in Matthew, it becomes an exclamation directed to the son of David. So what kind of salvation are they pleading for? Well, they're probably thinking very nationalistically or with a good dose of patriotism. They're thinking, this is the king who's going to come and lead us in rebellion against the Romans. We're going to kick them out, kill Caesar, overthrow the Romans, and we'll be free. And so, more than any kind of theological recognition that Jesus is the divinely chosen Messiah who can save from sin... Most likely, they're getting all frenzied and excited because they think the rebellion is on the rise and the king is coming to set them free from their Roman oppressors. But they don't seem to connect this in any way with the peaceful, kingly idea that Jesus is actually presenting to them as he rides on the donkey. And as verses 10 and 11 come up, we then enter the city of Jerusalem with Jesus And there's a less climactic response as he enters the city. Jesus is flummoxing Jerusalem. Sorry, my alliteration got carried away. I found another F word. Flummoxing. Do you know the word? It's a verb. It means to disturb really badly. I think Jesus is doing this on purpose. This is Jesus' design, riding on this donkey into the city in a way that he knows that they're not going to understand. They're not going to see it properly. He seeks to bring confusion 
as he announces judgment on their rebellion and their hard hearts. That's what he's going to be doing for the next five chapters of Matthew's gospel, announcing judgment against these people and against the temple itself. And so he rides in, and they're very confused at first, and Matthew says that the people of the city were stirred up. That's a rather tame way of putting what Matthew says. We get our English word seismic from this Greek word that Matthew uses, as in the measurement of the magnitude of an earthquake. We could translate the word literally as quake. The whole city was quaked as Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. He's causing an earthquake in Jerusalem. Not literally, at least not yet. Soon the city will literally, physically, geologically be rocked when he dies on the cross. And again, when he rises from the dead. Literal earthquakes. But here, his entry on a donkey figuratively, metaphorically, rocks their world. This is not Jerusalem being really excited about their king coming in. The prophet Zechariah prophetically called on the inhabitants of Jerusalem to rejoice. But the king's arrival actually results in their being disturbed and troubled. Now, it's hard to read tone sometimes in the dialogue of Scripture. How do you think people in Jerusalem ask the question, who is this? I think there's a bit of hostility in their tone because I think that the Jerusalem natives are seeing him coming in like this with all of this acclaim from the foreign crowds, and they hear him specifically referred to as the son of David, and they're not comfortable with that. In Luke's account, we read about some Pharisees coming out from Jerusalem and trying to get Jesus to shut his disciples up at this point. The people of Jerusalem do not see this crowd's frenzy and excitement as appropriate or as a good thing. They're disturbed, severely troubled, shaken up. When they say, who is this? They're essentially asking, who does this guy think he is? That's actually the question that Matthew's gospel as a whole wants to answer. Who is this man? Matthew has shown us that he is the great king, the king who will bring peace, the king who is God himself, who comes to bring judgment and salvation in a very strange way. In verse 11, we get yet another reference to the crowds, but now we're in the city. So this is probably the crowd of Jerusalem natives, or it may be a crowd of people who've come from other parts of the world and have had no real contact with Jesus personally. And they identify Jesus as a prophet. Now, if they had stopped there, we might think that they're on the right track. They might be connecting Jesus with the prophet like Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18 and expected either as a forerunner of the Messiah or as the Messiah himself. But then they add to this, this is the prophet, Jesus, you know, the one from Nazareth. You've got to remember that every time you see the word Nazareth in conversations in the Gospels, it's a put down, an insult. It's not a compliment. They might even sneer or chuckle under their breath as they say it. Matthew had earlier drawn prophetic significance out of even that fact. Jesus is indeed the prophet like Moses. And Jesus is indeed the Nazarene. He is the true son of David, and he is God himself. But the crowds don't know that. They don't believe that. They don't see any of that truly. So as we come to the end of this very familiar story, we raise the question, what are we supposed to get out of it? It's the record of an event that happened 2,000 years ago, and it's kind of a setup to the main event, the cross and resurrection. So what is this story supposed to do for us? What does it show us? It shows us something about Jesus, and I think it has some implications for who we are and how we're supposed to live. So what are we looking at here? If Jesus is the peaceful king, then surely we must be his peaceful people. How does this peaceful king bring peace? How does he achieve peace? It's different than we might expect. Paul will elaborate on his achievement of peace for us. In Ephesians 2, 14 to 17, we read, For he... 
Jesus the Messiah. He himself is our peace. What has he done? He has made us both, that's Jew and Gentile, those are the big categories Paul's working with. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might do two things. So that first, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. So he has accomplished peace horizontally. His death on the cross, which he's going to mention in just a second explicitly, his death on the cross has truly, truly brought about a situation where we ought to have peace with each other. He's not only made peace between us and God, but he's also established peace between us believers, Christians. No matter what dividing walls there are between us, between Jews and Gentiles, there are a host of differences that separated them. But even we in this building have things about us that tend to divide us. And we need to receive God's grace that tells us there is nothing, nothing, not ethnicity, not skin color, not stage of life, not the way you parent or educate your children, not the place that you're from, not your family line, not whether you're wealthy or poor or married or single or old or young. None of that should divide us, Christians, because Jesus has died to overcome those kinds of barriers. But Paul goes on in verse 16. He's made peace so that he might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles together, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Killing the hostility between us and God and also killing the hostility between us and each other. So the death of Jesus has broken all hostility between us and God. We're no longer God's enemies. We are all born into this world on the wrong side as enemies of the God who made us. But Jesus has done something about that. His death on the cross has removed that barrier, that hostility. And then verse 17, and he came and preached peace. And that line comes from Zechariah 9.10. He preached peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. Note that reversal of order that we tend to think about salvation being to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And so it is. But there's another pattern in Scripture. It goes both ways. Salvation goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And now salvation goes to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. If you want to know more about that, stay for ABF. So we jump back into Romans today. Because the Jews are being and will become jealous because of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for Gentiles. And we Gentiles experience peace with God. We experience intimacy with a God in a way that the Jews don't have. And it draws them through jealousy of all things. Paul, in a parallel passage, says something similar. Look at Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to do two things. To dwell. So all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And all the fullness of God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things through Christ, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, the death of Jesus accomplishes peace. The king rode into this city as the peaceful king, and he came to achieve peace and to offer it. But he couldn't offer terms of peace until he experienced the wrath and judgment of God in our place. That's the accomplishment of peace. He took the very thing that makes us hostile to God our sin and guilt. And he paid for it in full. And he offers that peace to whomever will receive it. Moreover, if our king has established peace, 
then we are supposed to be a kingdom of peace, a society of peace as the church. Three verses really quickly. In Romans 12, 18, Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know what that means? That means that within the context of this church, these people that you're sitting next to, or these people that you're sitting really far away from, for reasons, it is your responsibility to pursue peace. I know that some of you in this building are at odds with others in this building. I know that some of you have been hurt by other people in this building. And therefore, I know that you have hurt other people in this building. And therefore, I ask you, whether you've been hurt or whether you've hurt someone, have you sought peace with that person? Because whichever side of the relationship you're on, Paul says it's your responsibility to pursue peace. So would you move toward that other person? Because Jesus has purchased that for you. Jesus has bought not only peace with God, but he's also purchased your peace with your brother and with your sister. Purchased by his death. No matter what they've done, no matter what you've done, move toward your brother, move toward your sister, and pursue peace. Hebrews twelve fourteen begins with the words, strive for peace with everyone. That tells me that peace is hard work to cultivate and maintain. Strive for it. But by golly, if Jesus died for it, it must be worth it. It must be of incalculable value if he died, to bring that about. So, put in the effort. Pay the cost to yourself. It might hurt. You might get rejected. But it's worth it. Thirdly, look at 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11. Peter's quoting here from Psalm 34, 12 to 14, and applying it right to us Christians. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Don't you want that? Do you want to enjoy life? Peter's going to give you three keys to enjoying life. First, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You want to enjoy your life? Watch your mouth. Tell the truth in all your dealings. Second key, let him turn away from evil and do good. You want to enjoy life? Repent all the time. And pursue obedience to Jesus. That's the key to a happy life. Enjoy life, repent, and obey. Thirdly, let him seek peace and pursue it. You want to enjoy your life? Run after peace. Work for it. Pursue it with everyone all the time. Don't let grudges grow. Don't let hostility fester in your heart. Don't let bitterness Start as a root and become a huge tree that bears destructive fruit in your life and in your relationships. Finally, we need to talk about the war still to come. I'll just mention it. You can read about it later if you'd like. In Matthew 21, we read about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey 2,000 years ago. But Jesus is going to come back and he will be riding a white war horse. And he will be coming not merely to announce judgment, he will be coming to execute final judgment. If you remember the picture from Revelation 19, there's a picture of two armies. One of them comes with Jesus, riding on white horses of their own. The other one is under the rule of a beast. And the beast and the beast's army are going to find their rightful place in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever. May I ask a simple question? Which army will you be in on that day? Because guess what? Open enlistment is now. You start, by the way, in the beast's army. That's your default position. But you can join the other army at any time. Open enlistment is now. You can enlist in the army 
of the rider of the white horse today. And you can be assured of a white horse of your own. Not that you need that, but you do need to be on the side of the king when he comes back and not on the other side. So I plead with you, if you don't know peace with God, receive this king. He offers terms of peace to his enemies. And receive that peace. He's won it. He's purchased it. He's achieved it by his death on the cross. Own your place as one of those sinners for whom he died. And receive the peace that Jesus offers. To close this morning, I would like to sing one final song. If the music team would join me on stage here. It's a good thing to celebrate peace, but don't be confused about what peace is. The peace we're talking about here is objective. It's the reality of no longer being God's enemy. It's not about a feeling in your heart. Life is hard. Sometimes it feels like you're on the wrong side when you're not. Don't be deceived by your own feelings of unsettled anxiety. That's a normal part of even the Christian life. That doesn't go away because you follow Jesus. But what does go away is the objective hostility between you and God. He's no longer your enemy. You are no longer his enemy. You are under the blessing of God and not his curse. If you haven't received that, receive it today. Trust in Jesus. Would you sing with us? Go ahead and stand up. Sing these words.